Hello, everyone. Thank you all for joining our AI for Growth Executive Series. In this interview series, we learn from executives at leading global companies who have successfully applied AI to their enterprise and their team. My name is Marlene, you can call me MJ, and today we'll be chatting with Jack Chua, who's the Director of Data Science at Expedia. He's also had a background at Amazon, working at BCG, so I think we'll have a lot of really interesting things to learn from Jack today. Hey Jack, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Um, for our first question, would love to hear more about you, kind of your story, and how you first became interested in AI. Yeah, so um, I think it's it's a field that a lot of us kind of inadvertently land into, um, but you know, obviously it's super interesting and very high impact. So, um, you know, I think my path there has, has been a bit not, unconventional, but um, so I started um, studying theoretical math at the University of Chicago, um, and maybe two or three years in, I thought to myself, what the heck am I going to do with this degree? Um, and kind of the start was when I looked into um, what was kind of hot at the time, this was back in 2006, um, you know, to go into finance. And a lot of my peers were going to investment banking, um, hedge funds, that kind of space. And I was thinking, um, is there a way to apply the theoretical math that I learned and merge that into kind of the, the sexy M&A banking type of thing? And I stumbled into the field of quantitative finance. Um, so I just started voraciously reading books about option pricing, volatility trading, um, things where you can basically determine an underlying stochastic process of the instrument and, and trade given its dynamics. Um, and, you know, I, I was lucky. I, I got in before the whole subprime financial crisis hit. Um, but I would say that that was kind of how I started kind of bridging the gap between um, theoret theoretical math and, and industry. Um, I think another point in time came when I started uh, doing high frequency trading. So, you know, it's a field where not just the statistical elements of the, of the trade are necessary, but also kind of the engineering elements. And I realized the gap between um, knowing the theory, but actually being able to implement the theory, uh, whether in C++ or Python or what have you. And at the time coming from um, a pretty theoretical um, academic background and job, you know, I really had to, had to sit down and, and really learn how to code from scratch. Um, so that's what led me to go back to graduate school um, in Georgia Tech and applied mathematics. Um, and that's sort of where uh, machine learning is really starting to burgeon. Um, you know, I started taking uh, computational data analysis courses, um, learned from some of the best professors in the world there. And yeah, and a few, few years later, uh, here we are today. Yeah. So you've obviously worked at Amazon. You've worked on numerous projects within recommendation engines. How did you really get started there? And where did that lead you? Um, obviously, you're at Expedia now, so. Yeah, I mean, I think um, recommendation engines are, are really a small part of, of what I do, but it's a very important part for sure. Um, you know, I think the way that I like to describe it is actually surfacing the right content to the right customer at the right time and in the right channel. So it's on top of the content, it's kind of the whole ecosystem of how that content is displayed and what's the context. And, you know, I think, um, and, and maybe this is preempting other things you might ask me, uh, Marlene, but, um, you know, when you think about recommend, recommending someone something to someone, there's, there's a real business reason why you might want to do that, whether it's to encourage cross-selling of products or increasing the frequency of someone coming back to your website because you've got really great information and so on. So... I think recommender engines have a great tie into the underlying KPI of what you want to drive. 
And I think that's what really drove Amazon to invest in data scientists and engineers to build to work in the recommender systems, because the underlying context of why someone buys something is so complex. Um, you know, it could be the fact that um, it's seasonal, so maybe there's a big a big discount that's about to happen, or maybe it's utilitarian, so they actually just thought of something. Hey, I want this USB stick, so they just go to their website and buy it. And all these contextual clues combine in a way that I think classical business intelligence or business rules just cannot capture. Um, so it actually is like a, you know, a pure play AI problem. It's something that I think, you know, using business rules or human rules would be um, suboptimal for sure. I love that you're getting into this. And um, before we really dive into all the details, I would love for you to kind of tell us exactly what a recommendations engine really is and maybe walk us through how you would go about building it and what the factors of consideration are, which you kind of started talking about. Right, right. So I think just starting from, you know, pure axiomatic definition, a, a recommender system is, um, you know, some kind of real estate on a channel of some sort, whether it's an email or a website or a mobile app, whatever, what have you. You've probably seen it on Amazon. It's, it's a ribbon that has multiple products yeah. on it. It could be an email that has multiple um, components that has different products. Strangely accurate too. <laughs> yes. um, so that's, you know, kind of axiomatically what a, what a recommendation system is, you know, because there's um, building blocks that, that comprise these emails or, or these marketing, marketing material. Um, and it's the job of the human to figure out what should go in there, what content. Um, mm -hmm. So that's, that's really what it is. And, what drives the system? It's usually, uh, again, it's a building block. So, of course, there's a whole um, engineering work streaming ecosystem that goes into uh, a simple email that falls into your mailbox. Um, but it could be, you know, you could have UX designers designing what the email looks like, whether it's like kind of uh, summer festive looking or, or maybe um, something that looks a bit more transactional, like, hey, you know, um, you know, these are the things that you searched for before, so kind of UX driven. Um, but it could also just be, you know, data driven. So what data scientists tend to do, this is called a batch process, is they'll train the models in the back end. And the models could look at historical transaction data. They could look at the customer demographics. It could look at the product metadata itself. So, you know, the difference between like a USB stick or a TV or a toy and take all this information and provide the, the marketers with a list of kind of customer ID to all the products that they think are going to be relevant. So. Um, that's a batch process. There are also real-time processes where literally the minute someone clicks on the email, it sends a signal back to the data scientist, which then immediately incorporates it back into the next touch point. So um, where I've seen that done best is probably Amazon or actually in some travel um, travel websites like booking.com and Expedia. Um, you know, I think it's such a, I think retail is such a space where um, the margins are so tight that to really innovate in that space, you have to think of different contexts and, and kind of ways to understand what the customer is trying to buy that's out of the ordinary. Um, so hopefully that's the uh, answer you were looking for. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you, you talked about Amazon doing it the best. Obviously they've been working on this for a long time. What really spurred the initial development of this? I mean, it obviously makes sense to us today but, you know, Amazon and Google were some of the first companies to really do this. Can you tell us a little bit about the thought process and maybe even how it's evolved since the time that you were there? 
Sure. I mean, I think um, evolution might be the more natural point to start. So I think, um, again, um, all of these things in, in industry are generally driven by business purpose. So um, for recommender systems, I think for retail, it's, it's really around, hey, you know, we have this dynamic real estate that no longer is limited to signposts or billboards, and it can change every second or maybe even every time someone lands on a website. So it's, it's now this dynamic piece of real estate. And in order to capture the dynamicness of the, of the real estate, there needs to be some way to incorporate data seamlessly to, to, to update it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and usually that's, that's kind of how it started. Um, you know, I, I think there's, there's many, many things in, in practice that could be called recommendation systems, but we can, we can just focus on say like websites for now. So if you want, if you land on Amazon, um, you know, you have a ribbon that actually multiple ribbons and a good example of how different KPIs can be targeted is every ribbon has a different purpose. So right. one of them could be, these are things you've searched before, or these are things we think you like that, you, you know, based on what you bought before. And Amazon's actually usually pretty good about explaining what the ribbon is. So you land on it and there's a contextual anchoring. So you see exactly what the recommendation's for. Um, so I think historically what those ribbons have been, have been business rules. So a very simple business rule might be show things that um, you bought before just so you buy it again. And, mm -hmm. you know, shockingly, that actually led to a lot of lift when Amazon implemented it, um, the buy it again module. Um, mm -hmm. So that's something that doesn't require any sort of um, intelligence or whatever, just really looking at what someone has bought before and surfacing the exact same thing. And that, that can work for things that you know that customers have irregularity in buying, like, you know, pet food or um, various beauty products. But it tends to not work in things like fashion, where if you buy one shirt, you're probably not going to buy the exact same shirt again. Um, so I think that's kind of what drives the evolution of the, of the recommender system. Like, what is the product? What is the KPI for the product? Are you, what, are you trying to incentivize a purchase of the same thing or something like it? Um, and then based on that, you can tailor your algorithm. So a simple business rule algorithm for cross-sell might be looking. It's kind of something that's called a, a, association rules mining. So looking at things that tend to be bought in the same basket. So if you think in a, maybe in a grocery store context, like, you know, there's things that are staples and things that are, you know, often cross-sold because they have a higher margin. So maybe milk, bread, and eggs. And you see someone goes into the grocery store and they buy milk. Well, maybe then a natural thing to give them next is bread. So right. um, that's something that doesn't require predictive analytics or whatever. It's really just mining the data to see what patterns emerge. Um, another way of doing it is to do it based on something called collaborative filtering. So this is kind of pre- predictive models, or actually, I would say it, it's, it outdated some, it's, it's newer than some predictive models, but it's a, it's a relatively simple approach. So the idea is that you look at people um, that are similar to you in transactions. So maybe, uh, Marlene, me and you are pretty similar what we buy on Amazon. So uh, maybe we've, we, we've both bought the exact same things except for one item. So a natural thing to do is say, okay, well, because Marlene and Jack have been almost exactly the same you know, until that one item, let's just recommend that item to both Marlene and Jack and see what happens. Um, and it's, it's not as simple as that because the similarity can go multiple ways. It could be exactly, I'm right. 20% of Marlene and 10% of someone else and 80% of someone else. And you know, that combines into essentially a linear combination of different people. And that score that's extracted for every product for me is a combination of different people's kind of weights. Um, right. So that's, that's kind of um, was a breakthrough. And I think Netflix and 
um, kind of the movie recommendation problem was what spurred the development of collaborative filtering. Um, and then we, it kind of moved into, okay, well, can we make collaborative filtering even better? Um, are there ways to actually, you know, maybe one, start incorporating variables into the collaborative filtering. So not only do we know that Jack and Marlene are similar, Jack and Marlene are similar because these products are similar. Or maybe Jack and Marlene are similar because they both live in the same city and they're both kind of in the same um, you know, demographic. Um, so that, that kind of um, removed one of, the, one of the fallbacks of, of, of traditional collaborative filtering, which had no, had no variables. Right. Um, another thing that, that came out was um, the idea of neural networks. And obviously that's, that's been a big thing with deep learning and so on. But because deep learning enables someone to really just take in the raw transactions, um, you can just incorporate so much more information and just let the algorithm do things a priori. So with a neural network, you can take in transactions, you can take in product information, you can take in customer information. All that can just flow in in its raw, in its raw form. There's no need to create any new variables or anything. And the algorithm will just figure out what is the rank order of products that you like to buy. Um, right. And let me know if you'd like me to dig into the algorithm a bit more. But yeah, that would be great, actually. I know, you know, deep learning is such a popular term and method people are starting to explore. I would love to hear more. Yeah. Sure. Um, so the traditional way you can think about um, neural nets are kind of like functional approximators. So you'll have, so actually a linear regression is a neural net. It's just a neural, mm -hmm. a neural net with one layer and one, one, one set of weights. Right. Right. Um, but as, you, as it turns out, if you start layering them on top of each other, you know, if you think back to your um, traditional or your early day, like uh, middle school or high school arithmetic, um, when you do the chain rule, you have an F of G of H equals to something. Um, that's essentially what a neural net is, but it's actually discovering the correct F, G, and H that right. most accurately models your data. Right. Um, so the, when you think about that, the most generic form of the deep neural net is like um, a, 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 like a multi-layer feed-forward neural network. So you can basically create multiple layers that are called dense layers. And it's dense because each node, which represents a variable, will connect to another, another node in the next another, layer. Right, another node, yep. So that's that's like what's called a feed-forward neural network, and you know the the, the node could be like um, maybe this is like the types of type of product you buy, or a node can be um, this is the type of customer you are, and it could have right. thousands or maybe even like tens of thousands of nodes. Mm -hmm. um, right. And with the advancements of of um, kind of backpropagation and all the new inference techniques, it's now way way easier to train a deep neural network than it has been in the past. Um, so I'm not, not an expert in the underlying technology, but um, definitely an advanced practitioner. For sure. Yep. Wow. Those, they're, the, the evolution of all of these methods is so interesting. And you had mentioned earlier that you know, some of these methods are actually not predictive. Uh, which one of the methods are predictive then? Like what are the, more, the, the current methods that these companies like Netflix and Amazon are using? So collaborative filtering, um, I think it, it maybe could be predictive, but most of how people use it is not predictive. And I think that's kind of what historically Netflix had used. And that's just right. a limitation of the, of the collaborative filtering or kind of the matrix factorization um, family of, right. of, of algorithms. And the reason is because the way you, you think about it is actually like a matrix completion um, mm -hmm. problem where if you think of a matrix, and I don't have a board, so it's hard to jump up and show you guys. You just have flowers as a background. <laughs> <laughs> which is almost as good or better. But 
So in the matrix, you have on the rows, um, the number of customers, or each customer would represent one row. Okay. And uh, every column would represent the product. And every cell in the matrix is a, a score that represents how much the customer likes that product, or in a Netflix case, how much a customer likes that movie. Um, as you can imagine, that matrix is probably pretty sparse because not every customer has seen every movie. So right. that's one of the drawbacks of collaborative filtering. It's not only is it not predictive, you know, it's often the case that you have a really sparse matrix. Mm. Um, and the way that you initialize this matrix is you have to use some historical figure. So maybe um, this is what um, Jacks ranked the movie because he watched the movie last week and he gave it a five. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's not predictive in the sense that it's not the case that maybe I would have gave the movie a five next week. And I think part of why, um, can you still hear me? Hello? Yes. Okay. I can hear you. Yep. Right. Um, I think part of why, um, like, Netflix decided that this was fine is because movie preferences generally are pretty stable over time. If right. you watch a movie, like, a year ago, there's a good chance you probably still like the movie now. Um, mm -hmm. So the whole predictive component is not as important for that problem. Whereas mm -hmm. in, in transactions or retail, it's quite possible that your preference change right. rapidly or the minute you buy something, it no longer has the same recommendation power. Right. Um, right. So that's, that's where the predictive elements come in. And, you know, you can, you can frame recommender systems in a similar way as you frame other problems like churn detection or anomaly or whatever. You have an X, an X matrix that contains all your variables. And these X variables are historical. So these are things that you know, you know, if, if you're at a time T, these are things that are time T minus one and before. And your Y variable is the thing that's predictive. So it's actually time T plus one or T plus a month or what, what have you, whatever right. um, forward um, lead, lead period you have. Um, and, th and that's how most classification and regression problems are structured. So if you train a deep neural network, that's pretty much exactly the information that goes into your, into your neural network. Um, mm -hmm. so that's not, you know, I'm not talking about tensors or anything that's more, more dimensional than, than that. But, you know, right. I think that gen generally speaking, you'll have a data set that contains your, your, your historical data. You'll have an objective function or, or a Y variable that, that contains this, the, the future information you want to predict. So what happens is when you're trying to predict something, given your current point in time, you're not leaking, you're not leaking information. So. You're only using the information you know at time t to predict time t plus one. Um, right. So that that's kind of the, the long and short of how the difference between really good explanation. <laughs> I try. I try. <laughs> yeah. You know, actually, um, this reminds me. You know, to your point about you know all of these use cases that you mentioned, like retail, movies. So many brands at this point, small and large, talk about building you know a recommender engine of some sort. Yeah. What really makes it powerful then? You know, with Amazon, obviously, you can say that they have a big data set, right? But what are some of the other variables that allow a recommendations engine to be better than the next? Yeah, I think probably data is number one. So the data assets right. that you have um, that your company has housed. Um, so if it's Amazon, obviously, it's the, the incredible right. number of um, customers and transactions they have the incredible product diversity they have. So not just in the popular products, but even in the long tail. Um, yeah, I would say data is probably number one. And then after you have the data, then the algorithm is what's, what, what can help differentiate. So, you know, if you're a company that's using simple business rules versus like, yeah, a deep neural network or, or something like that, 
um, I think that that makes a big difference as well. And then I think also another thing that a lot of people underestimate, but super important is actually the customer experience. So instead of just throwing like a ribbon with a bunch of recommendations, thinking through the whole ecosystem of like, how am I like, you know, what are all the touch points that this customer is receiving? You know, am I fatiguing the customer with too many touch points? Is it information overload? Am I representing the intent correctly? So is, mm-hmm. is it, you know, Amazon, for instance, give an example, historically had been mostly utilitarian. So, of, you know, a, a good number of customers went to Amazon with an explicit, explicit agenda in mind. Like they right. wanted to buy like specific things and they typed it in and bought it. But, you know, I think they, they tried really, really hard to, you know, to leverage that because it's a good thing. It's good that people come to Amazon for that purpose. So leverage right. that, lean into that to see how we can cross sell better, sell things in different yeah. channels, maybe digital media, you know, sell hardware, the Kindles. So, you know, essentially. I think, right? yeah. Oh, I think that's right. I just wanted to make a comment that I, I don't know if you saw the Mary, Mary Meeker report, but she had said that, you know, 49% people who go to Amazon, you know, start and basically end with Amazon. Um, they yeah. search through Amazon and then they purchase through Amazon. So to your point, I think you're right. Most people do come with the intent of, of purchasing there. It's very utilitarian. Yeah. Right. And an- another really great example that I, I love to give is, um, is Starbucks. So mm-hmm. if you've played, um, if, if you're part of Starbucks loyalty program, more often yeah. than not, you've seen, uh, you've seen games that pop up, you know, either through your email or your app. And, you know, it's, it's a game. So it's a, a little bit of a different uh, medium than, than your traditional recommender system. But underlying that game is actually, a, you know, a heavy sort of um, customer data driven uh, recommender engine, which determines yeah. what products you like, what is the type of engagement you need in order to be a more valuable customer and so on. And, but, you know, I think the, the main point here is that data scientists, they have to work in lockstep with either designers or marketers or business analysts in order to come up with the optimal experience. Otherwise, I think, you know, something like a game requires so many different cross-functional um, lines of thought that I don't think either a data scientist or a marketer could have done it by themselves. <laughs> you know, data right. scientists probably would have just tried to figure out, you know, the, the recommender problem and not thought about the experience, whereas marketers would not even realize that data science could be used to optimize something to the segment of one, you know, literally to as many customers as, as they can have, you can pull as, as, you know, as many as levers. So if you have 15 million customers, you literally could have 15 million variants mm-hmm. using data science. Right. So we've, we've already talked about some examples where they built a really strong uh, recommendation engine. What are some other examples you've seen out there that you thought did a really good job? Uh, sorry, Marlon, you blipped for a second. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Do you, do you, can you give some other examples of good recommendation engines you've seen out there, whether it be brands or specific use cases within companies? Oh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> I really love, uh, I love Spotify. Um, I think they, they do a great job with both the customer-based recommender system, meaning finding out like which other people are like you and what they'd like to listen to. And also the I mean, content-based recommendation. They squash SoundCloud at this point, in my opinion. I use SoundCloud before Spotify and it's definitely too, better. Actually. Yeah. 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 I still kind of use SoundCloud as well, but um, yeah, Spotify definitely is in terms of engineering and the sophistication of what they, what they recommend. They, they just, they just do so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the interesting thing, most likely what they do, I don't know for sure because I, I don't work there, but they, they actually look at the, the music itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
whether it's the tags of the music, like, you know, what kind of genre is it? Who's the artist? They also probably look at what's the, what's the tempo, mm-hmm. what are the instruments? And they actually dig in into the actual kind of DNA of the music, kind of mm-hmm. similar to what yeah. Pandora was doing um, yeah. and use that to figure out what types of music you'd like. Um, so kind of mm-hmm. going beyond genre as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I've noticed that, you know, sometimes Spotify recommends me things that I, I, I didn't think I would ever like listening to, but the more I listen to it, the more I realize it actually is similar to things that I like. Um, <laughs> right. Pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, another one is YouTube. So mm-hmm. YouTube actually, um, they have slightly different KPIs than retail in the sense that most of their key KPIs are not transaction based, but centered around engagement. Mm-hmm. So they're designed to keep you on the website for longer. Um, mm-hmm. which is a proxy for, you know, for Amazon. Which they do a good job of. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, so basically, they, they think of the, I think their, des- their process probably starts with the design. So what is the actual UX that we want to enable um, someone that's on the, currently on the platform to, to do? So kind of like the whole customer journey mapping and figuring out, like, at this point in the journey, what is the right experience for that customer? So um, an example might be when you just finish watching a video, Right. So that's a great that's a great piece of real estate to actually step in and figure out based on what was just watched. So contextual on, you know, Marlene or Jack finishing this video on on Fuzzy Cats. What is the next thing that we think that they would like to watch? So oftentimes these contextual hints pop up in opportune moments on a customer journey. And I think YouTube figures out like what these you know journeys are and what what these optimal points are and then builds models around that. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, actually, you know, you, now you you kind of spurred a different question, which is, you know, how exactly people go about creating these engines. And you kind of mentioned that with different use cases, you have to start at different questions and different points. For example, you know, you said with YouTube, right, you might start with a question of design and engagement. Uh, but with Spotify, it might be different. So what are the I guess what are the different ways you would even begin to design this engine for for a, a good customer experience. Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think um, I, I wish there was a one size fits all answer, but I don't think there yeah. is. It's kind of a gray thing because there's multiple ways. Obviously, that YouTube or Spotify could have designed their experience. Right. Um, but I think it's it's generally just kind of working cross functionally and figuring out um, what it is, what are kind of rank order the things that customers care about. Um, you know, for Amazon, it was, hey, our customers are really utilitarian. Let's let's cross-sell to them a bit more. Um, mm-hmm. For Expedia or, or travel companies, it's let's figure out kind of, um, you know, customer segments. So can we can we figure out if someone is a luxury traveler, a business traveler? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are they kind of in the end of the customer lifecycle where they're about to churn and go to some other website? Or are they in the beginning? So it's more about education. So I think there's just so many... Um, ways to characterize a customer but i think it generally starts with understanding the customer better like what segments they're in how they engage of the people that are that are falling off what are the leading indicators that might tell us they're falling off Um, of the people that are just started what are the indicators that someone's actually growing into a stable trajectory those are just your typical like customer life cycle modeling and from there i think designing the right experience and maps to that point in the life cycle Mm -hmm. i assume kpis are kind of similar you know, the KPIs for Spotify, for example, or for Amazon are probably different than YouTube, right? To your point around, you know, you're going for the purchase or you're going for the next song or you're going for engagement. So, but 
typically, what would you say are some baseline KPIs that you you kind of track for these engines? Uh, that's actually a really great, great question. Um, so conversion, I think, is the, um, you know, whether it's converting to a transaction or converting into a click, that's generally the, um, the de facto standard for a recommender system. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also seen recommender systems optimize for other things like revenue and profit um, and maybe even some more esoteric things like revenue, um, like on on items that have a higher margin than 30% net of returns. So (laughs) basically that that objective would be, I want to recommend things at a high margin and people Mm -hmm. don't just return it. Um, So Mm -hmm. you're very precise with these KPIs. Um, Mm -hmm. But the thing to realize is in in choosing between these is what am I enabling? Like in choosing this KPI, what is actually happening to the things that I recommend? So Mm -hmm. for the margin one, What's most likely to happen is if you build a data science model that optimizes per profit, naturally, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to start recommending things that are high margin and actually may not not necessarily be what the customer wants, you know, to be surface things that are high profit for you, even if it doesn't say high profit, like you don't explicitly call that out on your website that, hey, we're going to make 40% margin on this. It still Mm -hmm. kind of biases your algorithm to pick things that are not kind of representative of a broader broader set. Another, another interesting KPI in the recommender system is diversity. So in most models, what happens is the model will have a pretty strong conviction of what type of customer you are. And it doesn't, it doesn't take into account the, the cross-correlation between the things you recommend. So mm-hmm. if you have like, um, I don't know, maybe from going to Amazon, it determines that I really like socks, right? Most likely the, in the top 10, you'll see socks, maybe you'll see underwear, Maybe you'll see more socks. And although it, it may be true to like socks, you know, one slot is enough for that sock. Maybe there needs to be a way to, to take things that are actually scored lower in, in the algorithm and surface that up for the sake of diversity. Mm-hmm. So there's these kind of cross um, hybridized objective functions where, yeah, you do want to maximize for conversion, but you have to take into account the customer experience as well that if you give them diversity, then they explore the longer tail of products and maybe longer term it might increase customer value. Mm-hmm. Got it. You know, I have so many more questions, but I think we're running out of time. So I want to just ask this final question, which is, you know, what are your final tips for building a, a good recommendations engine? How do you avoid the, the pitfalls? Like what are what are the things to watch out for? So number one tip, um, you know your product better than a vendor does. Vendor can can give you advice on the algorithm and what to use, but to plug and play a recommender system into your website without without really understanding your business and what drives it. So is it kind of a complementary thing where it's like a milk and eggs and bread type of thing? Or is it a fashion thing where you don't want to recommend two similar things? Or if it's a life cycle thing where you need to actually recommend things that fit the life cycle, only you know that. So if a vendor claims to know this better than you, I think it's a clear sign to stay away. Um, that's number one. Number two is um, if your business is just starting, I think you have to consider the maturity of your business to actually take in something that's as complicated as deep neural network. While obviously a deep neural net can, you know, will give you the cutting edge performance. Um, your business might not need that depending on where it is. So something I found actually is that, you know, if you look at all the research papers about like, oh, you know, random forest versus gradient boosted decision trees versus neural network, the difference in the cutting edge between like 
you know, once you get past the, the, the gradient booster tree, it's really, it's really small. You'll generally only see like a five to 10% improvement in, in your accuracy by going to something that's cutting edge. So mm. what this means is that you can actually get to 80% of, of what you need with something that's fairly simple. So right. I, think, I think take that into account. Another thing to take into account is the resourcing. So if you do decide to build something in-house, um, it's hard to find a deep learning expert or a machine learning expert that can maintain it over time. So I think what this means is that your business has to be mature enough to actually support these engineers because I think a lot of people have the notion that once they build it for me, it's done. I have, I have, I have the capability, but in reality, it's something that needs to be maintained over time, improved, bugs can pop up. You know, no machine learning pipeline is perfect. So it's, I think... From a strategic perspective or a tactical perspective, you have to think about it as a long-term investment versus just a build and throw it over the fence, which mm -hmm. I think, again, brings it back to why I think it's more important to build a capability in-house than having a vendor do it because the vendor isn't invested long-term in your business like you are. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, Jack, just thinking about this, I think you are probably the best recommender engine. What do you <laughs> think would be a good topic for us to cover in another one of our AI for Growth series? Well, tapping into the human neural network, um, <laughs> I think probably something around pricing would be interesting. I think, you know, mm -hmm. for retail, um, dynamic pricing and the ability to price on the fly is something that, you know, especially for companies that are moving away from brick and mortar channels and, you know, or, or things, companies like Uber, where pricing needs to be done on the spot. Um, I think that's something that machine learning has really just kind of scratched the surface on in industry. Um, another really interesting thing. Um, I think it's kind of the, um, and it's related, but I think it's the intersection between pricing and personalization. So not just surfacing the right content, but also surfacing the right price in conjunction with that content. So to give mm -hmm. personalized promos that, you know, are dynamic and tailored to every customer. Um, mm -hmm. So that I think is kind of like the next frontier for retail over the next three to five years. I think it's going to be happening pretty quickly because there's just so much value associated with it. Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm happy to, come on and discuss more depending on uh, how many of these. Awesome. Uh, yeah. You have. Well, thank you so much, Jack. I'm very, this was such a wonderful conversation and I'm, I'm sure we'll be having you on another one another time. So thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in to AI for growth. Hopefully we'll see you guys at our next episode.